From the boardroom to the shop floor, good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Mbele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. A very good evening to you. Um, if you ask me, how are you doing on this uh, cold Tuesday evening? I bet telecom load shedding doesn't help either. However, our conversation on this show are normally quite uh, sizzling hot. Hopefully, tonight uh, we'll live up to the expectation. Uh, thanks for joining me on this glorious Tuesday as we say hello to spring. So I bet everybody's quite excited that we saying goodbye to winter and hello to spring. Uh, I know that it has been a difficult period as the economy has taken a nosedive thanks to COVID-19 and, and a whole lot of other issues that happened before then. However, I'm optimistic that both political and economic landscape uh, will change for the better so that hardworking people, you know, such as you and I, can restore our lives. Uh, you know, this is your favorite show, Beyond Governance with Nimrod and Ben. I am pleased, I am pleased to share this space and tab with you as we continue our journey uh, in, you know, pushing the the, the, the ethical and productive mindset uh, in the economy, obviously with a view to promote several lines uh, for poor people uh, who are less fortunate in, in, in our communities. As you know, vast majority of South Africans are on a grand system, and that's not only sustainable, but in my humble view, quite degrading. Uh, as people were born to, to, you know, to work hard and prosper <laughs> and, and not to be charity cases. Anyway, these are, those are my views, which don't really matter, uh, in a greater scheme of things. However, your views are the ones that really matter, um, as I often reflect on these uh, from time to time. Uh, moving on swiftly, uh, let's have a quick recap in terms of our conversation with uh, Ellen Mokoki, which took place last week. Ellen, as you might recall, he's the CEO of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Saki in brief. Um, and I think our conversation was quite productive, uh, particularly on how best to turn around the economy. I mean, hopefully, uh, the powers that be are taking notes from such interviews, from such interviews on how best to build a capable state with values and promotes meritocracy. The reality is that policy pronouncement, as we have seen from time to time in this country, cannot implement themselves unless we have men and women of fortitude armed with nothing else but competencies and the right mindset. Uh, that is the, that was the gist of my conversations with Alan Cook last week. However, if you missed that episode, not to worry, simply visit our website, which is www.highfm, to download the podcast, and most importantly, let me know what you think, because um, it is you know, this show is nothing without you. It's important that from time to time we share notes or compare notes, on how best to, you know, really get the economy talking uh, and getting, you know, uh, the part that be to heed to some of our uh, expressed concerns. Uh, your visa expressed via WhatsApp, Telegram, or email. Uh, on the WhatsApp line, the WhatsApp line is 34519. The Telegram, it's, it's 061-895-1095. And, of course, my email is nimrod at hi.co.za. So what on our menu tonight? Uh, firstly, we normally st- uh, start our, by reflecting on critical leadership and governance issues facing the country. Uh, second, the second item on agenda um, is going to be 
online conversation with uh, with my guest tonight, uh, who is the Vice Chancellor of Veteran University in Waiting, Professor Zeblon Zigalala. Uh, on the second leg with Prof here, I will solicit his, I'll basically solicit his views regarding his vision for Veteran University in the context of financial constraints and appetite, of course, for a global competitiveness. I believe when you managing entities such as VEST, VEST you know, you obviously have to cast your eyes, uh, betray and look at what sort of uh, competitive uh, advantage you can take off. That will be the, the next second leg of our conversation. Um, as you know, competitiveness in any language hinges on a number of factors, which may include, not, not may, but definitely include financial and non-financial consideration. So in a nutshell, those are the two items on the menu. Uh, before you get into the gist of those two items, um, as a norm, allow me to uh, uh, thank colleagues who came, you know, before me. Uh, I bet they definitely kept you entertained, uh, informed about what is happening in the country and beyond. As for me, uh, as always, I endeavor to keep you informed by pushing the governance agenda slightly bit more. Uh, on that note, let me say thanks to Kathy, Simon, Tom B. Howard and everyone who came before me for a spelling work they have done. Moving on swiftly now, let's look at the, the first uh, item on our agenda, which is the reflection. I this is something that you know kept South Africans quite uh, heated over the weekend and of course yesterday. I mean, what am I talking about here? Um, first, let me just pose a question. Uh, what do you think of the ANC's outcome of the press conference wherein the, you know, the president was briefing the country about the outcomes of party, party's, uh, special NEC, NEC, NEC meeting, which was held over the weekend? I mean, for me, the message was very loud and clear. Uh, and my, my thought, Prof, is that we are definitely on a good start. Irrespe- I mean, any leadership that is responsive needs to heed and, and, and really take note of the, the, the views expressed by the, by, by the constituency. And I think we are pretty much on the right track here. Uh, what stood out for me here is the fact that the NEC endorsed Ramaphosa's anti-corruption letter. And that for me is a clear position that, you know, there is, there is some, some kind of thought leadership and standing and a firm position that this particular president has adopted. Uh, it is very clear based on his letter and subsequent, uh, brief, uh, you know, brief, uh, press release or press briefing that, um, cadres who are found wanting, uh, 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 you know, should step aside yeah, from all leadership position. But again, policy pronouncement does not necessarily translate to action. Only a matter of time will see whether um, you know, all his, uh, you know, video propositions will be heeded. You can already see the kind of, um, you know, uh, emotion that that particular letter evoked. But I think from a economic point of view, one of the biggest salient points which investors always yearn or seeks to achieve is investor confidence. I mean, uh, there has to be clarity of thought, clarity of, uh, of how government seeks to address issues which they have raised all along. I mean, for me, that... That is something that is very positive, which I believe the president is on the right track, and and he just needs to you know assume his you know role as the president, uh, uses constitutional powers to really push the agenda around some of the resolutions which were taken. The other issue that stood out for me, I mean, is the 
lotioning. I mean, well, um, we all know that lotioning is going to be a, a it's common cause that ESCOM has to go through a rigorous transformation agenda, which which is not an event, it's a process. Uh, we just need to make sure that uh, we are kept abreast of the developments, particularly around the, the dispensation which President made pronouncement about at some point, because uh, if we are not kept abreast of how far the process has gone in terms of achieving the short-term goals, medium-term goals, and long-term goals, um, it's quite frustrating. But I think um, the, the, Elstrom, the, the Elstrom saga uh, is something worth really focusing our eyes and energy on. And if the president's position is anything to go by, we should be pretty much on the right on the right direction, you know. When you look at what kind of practical measures that has taken to stabilize ESCOM, um, but anyway, those are my views, which um, are, will be tested at some point. But the biggest challenge which I'm expressing is communication on the side of government, communication on the side of ESCOM, not so much from the low shading, but progress in relation to the transformation agenda which the president has spoken about. Anyway, those are my views. Now that uh, I have done my first leg of a reflection. Let me take this opportunity to get into the main cause. I'm quite excited about this as I'm joined online by Professor Zeblon Zigalala, who is the new Vice Chancellor at Rich University. Um, on that note, let me take this opportunity to thank uh, Professor Zigalala for gracing high FM listeners, uh, particularly beyond governance, on this particular show. Prof, good evening and welcome. Uh, good evening, Dr. Mbele. Uh, it's Vilagazi, by the way. Oh, thank you. I beg your pardon, Vilagazi. I beg your pardon. How are you, sir? Cold, as you mentioned earlier. <laughs> thanks, 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 Prof. Uh, uh, on that note, Prof, um, let me just quick a, 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 a quick reflection on terms of what uh, Prof, um, I mean, he's a known uh, national quantum computing working, I mean, uh, computing uh, a, a, a member or, or, you know, he works with the National Quantum Computing Working Committee, which seeks to develop framework for quantum computing and quantum technology. Gee, I mean, when I look at your profile, it's just quite amazing. But personally, we get to the gist. What got you to think of or pursue uh, uh, quantums or, 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 or the kind of line of um, journey that you've adopted? What stimulated you? Well, first, you know, sometimes when you read profiles, uh, do not believe everything the media writes. Uh, as someone said that do not uh, spoil the truth with facts. So it's just the media as a means of portraying one more than they are. So, um, so one has to take it with a pinch of salt. But thank you. I mean, my background, as you mentioned earlier, is in um, physics. I'm a nuclear physicist and I've worked for many years, both here and at the University of Cape Town and abroad as a lecturer, academic researcher, uh, which is something I enjoyed very much. And uh, fate, as it were, would take its turn, and I found myself being a, a manager. Uh, I had been to run a university, uh, uh, first part of the management team since 2014, as the deputy vice chancellor for research and postgraduate affairs, and uh, now as a vice principal and the vice chancellor designate, uh, obviously. In the next uh, coming year, I will take over from Professor Habib as the vice chancellor. So my scientific path, career path, has somewhat been shifted towards 
institutional leadership, but I look forward to the challenge. Thank you very much. Uh, on that note, the, I think congratulations should be in order in your appointment as the uh, head of uh, university. And, and I would want to echo the same sentiments which most South Africans have expressed uh, to say you are definitely the right person to lead Fetch University to the new millennium. On that note, Prof. Um, thank you. Thank you. You are very kind. Thank you, sir. Uh, obviously, you're stepping into a role which um, has been led by your, you know, the current uh, professor, the current vice chancellor, which is Professor Habib. Um, what is your vision in terms of whether you, where you want to take the university uh, and how how would it differ from the trajectory which has been set by by, by Professor Habib, for an example? Yeah, I mean, obviously. Uh, the university is generally, uh, Nimrod, are uh, institutions that endure for hundreds or even in, in some cases thousands of years. So one cannot change direct, direction that uh, quickly. It's just a question of going along the same direction but taking another step change to the next level. Because the direction of university is to do the mission, to, do, is to conduct three mission critical things. Quality teaching and learning. Two, uh, research uh, and knowledge creation, and three, innovation, right? <clears throat> the whole conversion of, of knowledge into tangible products and goods. So in terms of teaching and learning, it is just to continue along the path that has been set by uh, Professor Habib and other previous administrators and uh, vice chancellors who have taken us to his path. There have been challenges in the past. We had challenges recently, uh, three years ago. And the university is back again on its uh, path. Uh, COVID, notwithstanding. Now, what is the difference or step change I want to add uh, to this? Is to actually add another layer of innovation, right? I mean, I heard you spoke earlier about uh, about uh, the 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 uh, young people who are recipients of uh, grants, right? <clears throat> the, you know, uh, and I do share your, as you called it, humble opinion. It's not the state that people aspire to find themselves to be it, right? We cannot change national policy. We are only, only university that is just one of many in the country. Um, but what will distinguish us from other universities and is that our focus this next coming five to ten years will be on driving the innovation pipeline that some of our students, some of our graduates, and you get some of the brightest students in the market, must be knowledge and also they must be job creators. That if you look at global examples, for example, MIT and Stanford in the United States have been the two universities that have changed the entire world economy by spawning digital tech, Silicon Valley, MIT in the space of, uh, in Boston, uh, Cambridge, in the space of, uh, you know, various tech uh, innovations. Uh, I do believe that uh, the time is now for South African and broadly African universities, not just to be spectators in this, that our graduates must not see themselves as people who queue uh, in this long uh, queue of graduates, but they must actually be able to spawn their own enterprises. They must become innovators and employers of the future. That is my dream, that actually this is what will distinguish our graduates, that they are not there. Of course, they will service the professions. We need lawyers, we need doctors, we need public 
announcers like yourselves, and I gather you're a best graduate too, you know, who make an impact on society. But at the same time, not all of us will do like I'm doing now, being employed by university. They must go one step further and actually spawn new industries, spawn new new enterprises that will uh, generate opportunities for many others and, 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 and of course, put us on the next technological plane. It's a big dream, but one has to put their effort into that. I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Prof. I mean, um, I really appreciate your your views. Perhaps maybe looking at this, uh, the, what, what you refer to as the uh, you know added layer of innovation, creating a deal pipeline, perhaps maybe of graduates that won't be job seekers but job creators, obviously make reference to MIT and other you know, broad universities. Um, that that kind of dream is very practical and, and quite, you know, realizable, subject to certain preconditions. I would imagine um, the precondition has to be, you know, one has to look at the entire university ecosystem. Yeah. Um, what would you say you need to, you know, unearth or perhaps maybe get your head around via support, you know, looking at all this other ecosystem to strengthen the university's competitive uh, advantage? You know, um, you must look at what our, our current strengths, right? Our research output, because innovation comes out of research intensity. A university that can produce knowledge, we now have to convert that knowledge into tangible goods. So we do have uh, exceptional growth over the last few years in terms of our research output as seen in the, research, uh, in the recent ranking by the Shanghai, which looks at the research in terms of our being now the number one research university on the continent. So the South Africa's problem is that you do, is that we are not short of ideas, right? I mean, we have been incredible innovators in South Africa from Kripakoli to, you know, even pioneering transplants and uh, many other developments that you've made. But it's the scale that you don't uh, produce in many instances. And the uh, policy framework that we have uh, from government, how to incentivize entrepreneurs, how to incentivize people who can take a chance, people who can risk, risk failure, right? I think that uh, we still have a lot of risk, risk, risk. We are being, we are quite risk averse and quite good in that regard. I think, uh, but I'm heartened by the fact that when I go to uh, our digital facility that was launched uh, a few years ago, uh, whose pioneer was uh, a retired professor of electrical engineering at VETS, Professor Derek Wolowski, is that now we have an innovation hub, uh, Nimrod, that has produced one of time top 100 innovators of last year, a young mm-hmm. who actually comes from Timor uh, right? Uh, from somewhere in Pirinaching and Sibobeng, I think. I think that the talent is there. We just got to create you know, the right conditions. And again, Timor Hong precinct in Bramfontein, now coming to your question, is that we are trying to create a, an ecosystem, a digital innovation ecosystem. We already ha- are launching this very large uh, IBM uh, laboratory, one of only 13 in the world, uh, that will focus on digital tech, quantum computing, which will basically be a new form of technological growth that we need to look into, and uh, other forms of innovation as well. So I do believe that the conditions are there. We have the student population. We have the right location, by the way. Location in Johannesburg uh, is seen by many as a, um, as a disadvantage, but it's not a disadvantage because these conditions... You have such a, a dynamic of many young people eager to explore new ideas, uh, surrounded by various um, uh, um, companies like Liberty, 
the banks if you cross the uh, railway line uh, on the on the Marshall Town side. These are the financial services which will be the first, shall I say, adopters of this tax. So I mean, there will be many false starts. I I I, I, I agree. So we don't uh, make these uh, statements lightly uh, as a pipe dream, but it is based on the existing conditions of saying. I think based on the fact that you've got a strong university in partnership with the University of Johannesburg. Uh, so you create that right economies of scale and the ecosystem and the youth energy that you can actually tap into to really, you know, uh, project into the next orbit. Thank you very much for that uh, view, Prof. I mean, one thing that I want to pull you on, I mean, a couple of years, um, most of the graduates are now queuing like anybody else because they are not able to create job opportunities. They are job seekers. And, and I really like this idea of pushing the innovation envelope quite extensively uh, by bringing in youth uh, graduates for them to pursue their own goals or their own, you know, um, in entrepreneurial ambitions as, you know, so that they can add value in the economy. Um, because we have seen in most instances, most universities are producing uh, job seekers, and it, it's it's actually criminal to have universities such as VET, UCT, you name them, you know, producing more and more um, job seekers when we have been privileged uh, by you know getting the biggest or the highest standards of intellectual um, uh, our input, which ordinarily gives them an edge in terms of becoming competitive in the in, in the in the economy and and moving forward. So it's quite pleasing to hear. That, that, that mind shift, um, you know, that you're coming up because I think it's quite fresh. Um, perhaps maybe take a step back, Prof. At the same time, if I might just, uh, apologize for my interjection there. Sure. The, I'm the one who's to be cognizant of the fact that, I mean, by the way, just, uh, I think that's 96% of our graduates get employed. So you've got a very high employability rate, right? Because the, there's an appetite in, 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 in industry for employable graduates. So, um, statistically, a great number of graduates, actually, people with degrees have a higher chance of employability than those who don't have degrees. So even university graduates are quite a privileged uh, elite few. But to me, it's not about, it's good, of course. We need, as our institutional obligation, we need to produce, I think you made something which is quite important earlier on. We still need to continue producing graduates who hopefully should serve the state, should go on and become ethical judges, become ethical executives, become ethical Politicians become ethical public servants. I mean, that's the role of university. But that should not be our only focus as well. We do need to create ethical, dependable uh, public and private servants. At the same time, we need to also ensure that there will be a significant number of our graduates who are also, you know, entrepreneurs. So those two, I don't see them as being mutually exclusive at all. They're just part of an expanding landscape. No, thank you very much, Prof. Um, uh, I believe we just need to take an ad break. We'll come back in a second. Um, thank you very much for your contribution. Tabo, let's take a break. Um, we'll come back in a second. Kosher World Center, the heart of Glen Hazel. Open daily, Sunday to Friday, from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m. and a quarter of an hour after Shabbat and Chagim. Enjoy the convenience. From groceries, Chabad Bookshop, Safarim and Judaica, Cleaning Brothers Dry Cleaning and Mending, Bagels, Fresh Deli Foods, Co Sushi, Jersey Blue Coffee, Montague Dry Fruits and Nuts, Kalim Mikvah, The Party Shop, Tulamish Hairdresser and Beauty Salon, Kosher World. Enjoy the experience. 
Give your child the best possible grounding for life at Redhill School. We ensure that our children actively develop the skills, creativity, confidence and thinking that will prepare them for the world they will one day enter. Our international baccalaureate program is globally recognized and pioneering in its approach, teaching students to be inquirers, risk-takers and open-minded individuals. Visit redhill.co.za for details. Red Hill School, building leaders for their time. Hi, David Aronovitz here. The Kolo Bookshop is open for you. You can call us for all your book needs and we will have them ready for your pickup. Our new site will be up and running soon, so please send us your email and sell details to stay in touch with our latest books. Send to kolobooks at gmail.com. Lots to read, lots to learn. We are always there for you. Have a wonderful day. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Uh, welcome back. It is now 28 minutes to 7 o'clock. How I wish I could just hold time for I'm having a very interesting conversation with the Vice Chancellor of, uh, uh, Vice Chancellor designator of, uh, of Vets University, Professor Zeblon, uh, Villagasi. Uh, if you've just joined us, please weigh in on our conversation. Our um, ISMS line is 34519. Telegram is 061-895-1095. Of course, my email address is nimrod at high to zero ZA. Uh, Prof, before we went to the, before we went to the break, I think you were making very important observation about how do we take, you know, um, not only vets, but pretty much all the universities uh, to a different landscape, wherein we're not just only producing, you know, doctors and lawyers, but also have to produce entrepreneurs. Um, but but I want you to pick your brain on on the, you've just you said, um, um, vets just recently got a position number one from a Shanghai. I couldn't get that point exactly. Could you maybe just take us through that, Prof? That research vets has, you know, um, has been receiving accolades, um, uh, as one of the best universities in Africa. Uh, you, mean, you mentioned Shanghai. Perhaps maybe you could just take listeners through that because I think it's a very important, um, uh, 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 accolades to share with the listeners. I'm going to be not here. You've always been one of the best universities on the African continent. It was a question of whether are we number one or number two, right? Uh, with, with the other universities whose name are not mentioned. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, okay, uh, there are many ranking agencies. I mean, tomorrow you've got other results of another ranking agency. So a ranking agency uh, looks at many parameters. You know, others look at marketability and how the university is reputation in terms of its profile. Others focus on research. This particular one, the Shanghai largely has an emphasis on uh, research, primarily and unfairly so, in mostly the sciences, uh, STEM fields. Do you understand what, what I mean? So therefore, it's not a, it doesn't give you a complete, a composite picture of a university. It is just in one of the attributes of the university. So, um, um, we, we, there are two universities that are listed among the top 300 in the world, which is basically just over a percent, one percent of the world's universities it is us and the University of Cape Town. And for the last four years, you know, there's been a contestation of who's the one or two of the two. And this year, uh, we have uh, taken the, the edge. 
And again, we are the top-ranked university on the African continent. But I think the gap is quite marginal between the two of us and has been for the last uh, many years. And, uh, and what is pleasing as well is that it's not only vets and UCT that are in the top 500. You've had many other universities that, that, have, that have joined. Uh, out of 23,000 universities in the world, you can just do the math. You see that this is not, this means a mean feat, even in the challenges we face. But our goal, obviously, is to keep in climb higher. So for that, you require the support of many of our friends and the member community in South Africa, the alumni, uh, the academics, and the city and the province to work with us in ensuring that we create these jewels of knowledge to survive, thrive, and grow in the next year. Well, I can tell you, Prof, um, from where I'm sitting, You've got our support. I mean, most of uh, our listeners uh, obviously come from, you know, vets in the majority. I, I, and I wouldn't mention other universities because I haven't had the, the privilege of attending those. I can only speak for vets because I'm a vet graduate. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> I'm quite pleased uh, to hear that um, uh, vets has uh, assumed its rightful position um, in, in, in leading the continent. Um, but... The other interesting point, Prof, I'm not sure whether what what has been the underlying uh, success condition for vets to assume that particular, you know, uh, position. The reason why I'm asking this question because I want to locate this question in how universities in general have felt or have viewed, um, you know, political administration, uh, just the fifth uh, political administration. And, and juxtapose that with the current administration, wherein we've heard uh, that, uh, uh, you know, most politicians marginalize universities. And we're just quite upset in that universities are breeders of knowledge. Um, you cannot operate in a knowledge economy outside or without taking into account what universities are producing. Can you maybe take me as to, has there been any, is there a mind shift in relation to how general politicians, particularly in the current administration, view and appreciate the role of university vis-a-vis innovation that you are, you know, talking about? Yeah, I'll just give you a very subtle difference in how I can respond, and I'm by no means that the question. VETS is not a state university, right? It is a public university. There's a very big difference there. Mm-hmm. It receives funding from the state, obviously, because it's a tech-funded institution, but it receives funding from other sources. So, so therefore, we see ourselves as a public university with our responsiveness towards the course. And you're correct. You are putting it correctly. You know, making our contribution to the country and broadly to the continent and, where possible, the rest of the world. So I think we are not an appendage of the state. We are a publicly funded university uh, with all the academic freedom we have for the choice of student admission, for the choice of uh, curriculum we want, of course, we are guided by the national legislation and the constitution. I mean, we are a national university in that regard, but not this, we're not a, a government agency. So, but we've got the responsiveness to the state. And I do admit that, you know, despite all the different political, uh, uh, administrations we've had, because of the nature of the university itself, I don't think that we've had a university administration in all the last uh, administrations that I've had, both the previous government and this one, of someone coming to uh, the university telling them what to do, right? We've been allowed, which is which, which is a privilege, you've been allowed to get on with our business. 
Where we have had problems is, of course, in terms of subsidy funding. As a uh, historically advantaged university, it is clear that the funding for vets has not been as, you know, as good as it ought to be. So we have to rely on other resources because there has been a prioritization, which maybe sometimes can be, you know, rightly so, towards the uh, historically disadvantaged universities. So I think we have been led to fend for ourselves in many regards. Uh, but I think that uh, in terms of uh, being told to do, the state has not been imposing itself on us. All they've done is, of course, we've got to ensure that we follow national legislation and we also, uh, you know, uh, broadly respond to some of the national challenges that we have. And in terms of inclusion and making sure that we are also cognizant of the inequalities of our country. And I think to me, the main challenge that we've had with government has been around funding, which is why we had the Fismas Ford explosion, because we were underfunded and therefore, you know, we had that problem. And I think that was the main challenge that we had with regards to the state in terms of the underfunding and the missing middle crisis, which we are still having. I'm sure you're aware of the missing middle and all that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. But, but I mean, uh, look, I mean, I think you're raising a very pertinent point around subsidy, uh, from the state, uh, given the vet's, um, uh, history, you know, com- you know, compared to other universities, uh, it has relatively, uh, uh, you know, relatively successful or relatively well off material, materially, so to speak. Um, that is, that is understandable, but, I mean, you raised a very important point around the the middle, the missing middle, uh, which seems to be an issue year in year out. Um, but but I'm sure in in, in the current there's been greater process measures that has been adopted by the by the university to to to, to promote greater access. Uh, obviously, by making sure that those the missing miss, the missing uh, middle uh, students are not left behind, or we don't we don't find ourselves in the same uh, you know, Tassel, we found ourselves, you know, uh, in 2015 or 16, if I'm not mistaken. What, what would you say? Are you comfortable that they, you know, the, 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 there is relatively sufficient resources or are we likely to find ourselves at the level where we were when we had, uh, FISMAS for our campaign? We will have different challenges, but I don't think that no one can say, uh, um, sufficiently resourced, right? I mean, there's no such a thing that you all, because there will always be need for many things to come. Uh, but I think that the challenge is not, see, we have been able to respond to the issue of the very poor and the, uh, working class students, uh, who constitute about 10, 20 to 20% of our students. But the large bulk of our students, Nimrod, are from what called middle, 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 middle class, middle class self-funded students, right? And that, of course, is a proportion, of course, of very wealthy students who can afford for themselves. So effectively, the state funds only 20% of the students and the rest have to fend for themselves, uh, which is where the pressure lies because most of our students come from adult call, lower to middle class and upper class uh, students. But those that are too poor to pay uh, and too, 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 too wealthy to benefit from the NESFAS uh, scheme, uh, National Financial Student Aid Scheme, and those that are, uh, 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 but they're not wealthy enough to pay all the fees because you are one of the most expensive universities. So that's where the squeeze lies. And I think there have been many schemes to try to, you know, find a misblind uh, funding to those students. And luckily, many, many, many of them receive support from many corporate sponsors as well. So I think, you know, we, we have those challenges and they will never go away. 
they are not, by the way, a South African problem. I mean, um, I just read a recent article uh, around the U.S. student debt, which now stands at, as of 2017, at $1 trillion U.S. dollars, the total debt owned by students who actually, you know, uh, at these uh, Ivy League schools. So the student debt is one of the biggest global problems we have as a country. How education has become, especially good education at top universities the world over, has become expensive for the middle classes. No, I couldn't agree. With you. I couldn't agree with you more, Prof. That's a, a, a global crisis, as it were. But the biggest challenge is always around how management um, is more proactive and, and anticipating some of these challenges because um, these some of these issues are not new, are, are historical. Um, the extent to which any university, not not only vets. Uh, it's more proactive by anticipating we're more likely to, to address, um, uh, and, uh, these kind of challenges. On that note, I think, uh, congratulations for vets, you know, being able to constantly find what best ways to address, uh, you know, the 20% of, of students that have been funded by the state where there are gaps. The other issue that I want to personally raise with you, Prof, uh, if you may, it's around, I mean, innovation something that is very critical and and has to do with the 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 the, the kind of research output that you raised earlier um, because there's a positive correlation between the research output and perhaps maybe the standing of a university and 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 resources that that it's able to generate um, can you perhaps take us through in terms of what's the university strategy in, in promoting higher yield of uh, National Research Fund researchers, um, you know, because based, based on what I've, I've not, based on what I don't know, there's a positive correlation. The more we have researchers that have viable research output, the, the higher the standing of a university, the more likelihood that university could accrue some kind of commercial uh, benefits. What is the university strategy from that end, Prof? The right of the matter is that it's all about human resources, it's all about people, all about human resources, right? Uh, our goal in terms of driving our research agenda has been to attract some of the brightest and the most productive academic staff and good students. So it is about people. It's about ensuring that you take care of your academics. Uh, give them the space, the freedom for them to think. And of course, they will have obligations of teaching and, you know, doing ethical research. And then the rest doesn't require any magic, uh, you know, wand. We just say, you know, what do you want? Give them the uh, space, the laboratories, the uh, fields that they can work on. And, um, you know, and uh, let them think and come with solutions. And then the rest just works out. So you don't need to do much. Just go to have enough resources and attract some of the best scholars. And then they will do what they're good at. Just go to, as a manager, give them the space, time, and give them this, the right support framework. When we come in as a university, is to, of course, ensure that we give them the right administrative support. We don't want our researchers, our academics, spending time filling countless uh, forms and or doing mundane administrative uh, jobs that can be done by someone else. So therefore, we must ensure that we put the ad- appropriate uh, administrative support systems that will help them. Uh, generally, people who are academics are very poor at administration. They cannot administer themselves, so they need to be helped. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, they are too focused on their work. So we need to ensure that we put the right support systems to uh, allow them to focus on what they are good at. Uh, so, so I think that is our responsibility. 
and then uh, they can apply for their own grants from major foundations across the world and in South Africa. It's quite a simple job in that regard. And then, okay. and of course, make sure that they're appreciated. Okay, great stuff. Um, but, but, but I think the, the, the biggest element, um, as all things being well, you give, um, you know, um, faculty administrative support, you give them space, they do what they have to do, they come up with a product. Um, to what extent are some of these research outputs finding expression in the economy? Because there's no point of producing this, you know, uh, research outputs, as you put it, which don't find expression in economy. Uh, how do we make sure that, firstly, all these research outputs first are aligned to economic imperatives and certainly add value? What, what your comment would be on that score? My comment is some research does not find its way making commercial value immediately sometimes. I think that's the difference between R&D and industry and uh, academic research. Uh, I think that in areas like engineering, yes, by and large, it's an applied science. In economics, uh, to an extent, and in other areas like accounting, you know, it addresses problems. But someone who is a philosopher, I don't think that the philosopher should be punished for uh, not adding value, but they actually enrich society. They add value in a different way. Or someone who is a physicist, I mean, in my profession, physics only has impact 40, 50 years later. You know, when Einstein was dreaming of his theories of relativity or quantum mechanics, I mean, others, no one thought that we'd have some of the applications that are being used now. So there's a, a continuum of, 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 of what I would call uh, blue sky research and applied research. But in blue sky research, we need to give those academics space just to think and not say, hey, Professor X, where is the uh, product? Those, they cannot do that. But if you look at the, on the other end of the spectrum, that is where you must focus. Where possible, uh, those researchers that actually are working on tangible like in public health, for example, advising policy. Already, Nimrod, I'll give you an example of actually research that has even influenced policy. There's a Professor Edwards on National, Professor Karen Hoffman, whose publication on sugar and its impact on public health has now been passed into a national policy called the sugar tax policy. Can you see sometimes there are those areas where within a few years of working on a particular project, you are able to conclude with the study, and the study has a huge impact within a few years of its, being, of, of its conclusion in a sense that now it is becoming a policy. We have a policy. On COVID, most of our uh, medics, in fact, if you look at the COVID uh, uh, crisis management, in fact, if you look at most of the, and I, and I must be careful now I say this because I'll be seen as uh, beating the drum of one university, is that <laughs> almost half of the experts on COVID Professor Gray, uh, Professor Glenda Gray, Professor Shabir Mahdi, uh, 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 and many others, uh, are in, in, in the, uh, are, are leading in this, are leading the charge there. So, you know, and that is basically in a response to a local and a global crisis in health. Thank you very much, Prof. I tell you what, from where I'm sitting, there's no harm because you're stating the fact it's not your view. I mean, it's public knowledge. These people are there. <laughs> but if you've just joined us, I'm having a very interesting conversation with Professor Zeblon Villagazi, who is the current, um, you know, uh, Vice Chancellor designate for Vet University. Uh, do join us. Uh, our SMS line is 34549. The telegram is 061. 
895-1095. My email, of course, is Nimrod at high. I'm hearing a, a go at the prof in terms of his view around Vest University, uh, as he'll be assuming this, uh, you know, position in 2021. Um, uh, I welcome your thoughts and your views. If you've got any question that you want me to ask, uh, prof here, you're more than welcome. I've just, uh, uh, you know, shared my, my, my platform with you. Prof, as we are, rep- as we're about to wrap up this, this very interesting conversation, um, what would you say are the biggest, uh, you know, uh, project that you'll be leading, uh, as, 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 as vets, uh, vice chancellor amidst all this financial constraints? Uh, by that, I want to say what would be your, your legacy project that you're very passionate about? And that you, you want, uh, high listeners and everyone, of course, nationally and internationally to remember you by as a legacy project that you want to, uh, uh, pursue or leave behind. You know, that's a very good, I've got five things, but I'll just only mention one. I, I think, um, uh, I did mention innovation as a broad umbrella, but I think that, uh, our future, is broadly in the space of tech. You know, uh, my legacy project is to that VETS will be seen and it will be seen along the same vein as MIT within the African context. That you think of what is the place when you need to solve the hardest problem that can be solved uh, in all spheres, then you must go to VETS. From the private and public sector, you must say, you've got a problem X. Who can solve it? It's a complex problem. You can say, that's, uh, we need to lead in the, uh, finding solutions of how we adapt to the challenges of the fourth industrial revolution. And we are, as I've shown already with our lead in quantum computing and data sciences. And those are all the underlying technologies that will solve, at least play a key role in helping solve all the challenges of the 21st century. Thank you very much for that, Prof. Um, um, what would you, I mean, obviously these are obviously big projects. I mean, uh, events were to be seen along the side of MIT, um, which is obviously quite great, and I'm sure uh, we're not too far, uh, but what would you say are the building blocks towards that particular environment, um, which, 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 um, Looks pretty much like your Harvard, your, 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 your Oxford, your MIT, uh, um, you know, what would you say would be the building block towards that and, and how ordinary South Africans can, you know, from, from, from corporate, public, uh, public sector, uh, and everyone else is support your dream because this is a mammoth task. Uh, I mean, the dream, by the way, I mean, this is not something that I can complete within my term of office, right? You know, because you've got fixed terms, you've got five plus five. So, but I think, uh, like everything else, you follow on a dream. Like Kennedy followed, had a dream of landing men on the moon, but men was landed on the moon in 1969, right? So these things go beyond one's uh, term of office, but I must ensure that I set the right infrastructure. One is to ensure that we create the, one is the basics. The Howard Brampton precinct. Work with the city of Johannesburg, work with our city university, UJ, to ensure that we've got a space that is safe for our young students, uh, male and female, to walk around at night to innovate. Once you create that precinct that is safe to work, play in the space of Brampton between Joyson Street, 
if you use your mind's eye, between Jordison Street and Smarts Avenue and uh, Smith Street, that should be our playground, right? Then the rest will follow. So the city must ensure that it keeps, you know, <laughs> the lights working, that there's appropriate security, that things that are basic that the city ought to do gets done well. And then, uh, then our academics can come and work there at night and come with like innovations and with young stars who can come with great ideas. So that's the first building block. The second building block is, you know, our alumni should support us, uh, the private sector, uh, the financial services industry, the tech industry that South Africa has, uh, they can come and, you know, be our partners in that regard. And, uh, finally, of course, it is the academic project. Our, we need to ensure that we retain and grow our academic talent and get the best students in the market and get the best academics. Basically three. It is the environment of John of Johannesburg around Brampton has to work. We need local partnerships. The uh, alumni and friends of the university must be our supporters. And uh, the actual players on the ground will be our students and staff supported by management. I couldn't agree with you more. And I hope um, those building blocks uh, could obviously lead to what's uh, was the picture that you have envisioned. But um, elsewhere I read that you're quite keen on African Renaissance. To what extent is that philosophy intertwined with your dream? Because um, obviously one has to go beyond just South Africa. One has to go beyond the region to to really, you know, uh, anchor that kind of uh, orientation. What would your take be in terms of bringing the region and the entire continent to, to, to get this ideal, you know, uh, on track? You know, um, when people see Africa, they see it in a in negative light, although that is beginning to change. But I think we've got something that works in our favor, right? I mean, we are a, uh, an area that is still ripe for new ideas. Uh, you've got the youth, the youthful budge. You've got lots of young people. So I think that, um, we need to just ensure that we partner with other African universities to become leaders. I think people are yearning for leadership and hope. I think that universities are our last hope in terms of ensuring that we create a space that can ignite that spark of, 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 of I wouldn't use the word renaissance, but that spark of actually ensuring that Africa is not seen as a, in a, in, in, as a hopeless continent, but as a, as a place to uh, do business, study, learn, and innovate in. Thank you very much, Prof. Uh, if you've just joined us, I'm joined online by Professor Zebron Villagas, who is the Vice Chancellor designated for Vet University. Do drop me your SMS line. Your SMS is our MS, our line is three four five one nine. The Telegram is zero six one eight nine five one zero nine five. And of course, uh, I take your comments via my email, uh, which is Nimrod at hydrogenoza. Prof, as you're rounding up our conversation, it has been absolute pleasure having you. And we want, you know, wish you nothing but the best uh, in your tenure. Uh, and may all the, 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 the plans that and wishes that you've had around turning around Vets Business School uh, from where it is to a greater heights uh, come to fruition. Thank you. Thank you very much.
It's been absolutely pleasure, Prof. There you go. That we, as we're wrapping up, uh, that was the interesting conversation with Professor Zeblon Vilagazi, the Vice Chancellor Desert Designate at Vet University, giving us uh, his views around how he intends to, you know, revolutionize Vet University and putting it on a map, um, as it were. Um, until we meet again. Uh, it has been absolutely fun. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with, with good prof. Tabo, once again, thanks to you for coordinating. Kabisa, uh, thank to you for coordinating the, the stuff as well and making sure that everything, uh, is moving very swiftly. Let's do this. Let's do this again next week. Have a good one.